What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Not long after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in 1968, a cartoon ran in the Chicago Sun-Times. It showed King standing next to a seated Mohandas Gandhi, another iconic leader slain by an assassin's bullet. The cartoon Gandhi tells King the following, The odd thing about assassins, Dr. King, is that they think they've killed you. The American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that society punishes those who try to improve it. King and Gandhi were willing to take that punishment. In fact, they welcomed it as the price of change, even when it meant losing their own lives. And indeed, as the cartoon suggested, the principles of love and nonviolence that they preached did not die with them. What Gandhi called the soul force continues to live on in the hearts of millions, challenging injustice all over the globe. I'm Sean Braswell, and this is The Thread. This season, we've traced the origins of a powerful idea, one that has crossed continents and transcended religion, class, and other barriers to change the lives of millions of people during the past 200 years. That idea is nonviolent resistance, the counterintuitive notion that the best way to reform your enemies is to love them. The best way to counter their blows is to absorb them. Here's a quick recap of where our journey through the history of nonviolence has taken us this season. We began with the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the American most famous for using nonviolent protest. For several weeks now, we, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, 
have been involved in a non-violent protest against uh, the injustices which we have experienced on the buses for a number of years. King, however, was standing on the shoulders of giants, starting with his own mentor, Bayard Rustin, a tireless activist who organized the March on Washington and transformed the civil rights movement into a powerful force from behind the scenes. The man who believes in nonviolence is prepared to be harmed, to be crushed, but he will never crush others. Bayard Rustin's own arsenal of nonviolent tactics, in turn, were borrowed from a remarkable Indian. I regard myself as a soldier, though a soldier of peace. As a young lawyer, Mohandas Gandhi learned about the potential of nonviolence from another larger-than-life figure. After he accepted passive resistance, he wanted to learn a, a little bit more about it from Tolstoy, and so he started a correspondence with him, which went on for several years, uh, back and forth. Leo Tolstoy. In his youth, the Russian wrote two of the most famous novels ever written. Then he underwent an awakening, one that led him to a means for translating spiritual love into a force for political resistance. He didn't want to really have to deal at all with coercion at any level. And this is really the sort of heart of the idea of nonviolence and what so inspired him about William Lloyd Garrison too. The American abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, the man who influenced Tolstoy, was really the first thinker to realize the potential of mass nonviolent resistance. But the launch of Garrison's big idea and his influential anti-slavery newspaper depended upon another man. In this final episode of The Thread, we'll learn about that man and the single act of love for an enemy that kickstarts our entire thread. We'll also tie together some of the themes that unite our history of nonviolence and find out about some of the surprising traits shared by the historical figures we've covered this season. Finally, we'll look at the history of nonviolence in the 50 years since Dr. King's death and how this revolutionary idea continues to change the world. In the last episode, we learned about how William Lloyd Garrison founded a newspaper called The Liberator in 1831. Historian Bruce Laurie. Garrison's Liberator is the most important anti-slavery newspaper in the United States, some would argue in the world. In the pages of The Liberator, the white abolitionist argued not only for the end of slavery in the United States, but also for improving the treatment of all African Americans. To get his message out, Garrison depended heavily upon local black communities. At least three quarters of his readership is black. Very unusual for the time because he was one of the few whites who openly espoused equality. Garrison also cultivated relationships with prominent black intellectuals, business leaders, and activists in northern cities. And what would become the most important anti-slavery publication in American history would never have made it off the presses if not for one prominent black businessman in particular a sailmaker from Philadelphia named James Fortin. The 25-year-old Garrison reached out to Fortin for help in December 1830. The mock-up of the very first issue of The Liberator was ready to print, but Garrison had a big problem. He could not afford the paper required for its first print run, and so had to pay for it on credit. The day the bill came due, Garrison still did not have the money. But that very same day, Garrison received a letter from the wealthy businessman. This is Fortin biographer, Julie Winch. He sends Garrison 
a draft for $54, which is a substantial amount of money. For Garrison, it was a life raft at a critical moment in his new venture. He often credited Fortin with making the Liberator possible. But Fortin's support of Garrison did not stop with that first issue. And he is just always there for Garrison. And, and that is so important. Garrison doesn't have that many friends, black or white. He is from a fairly poor background himself, so he does not have inherited money and inherited connections to rely on. And that is what Fortin really comes out for for him and, and assists him with, and not just once, but repeatedly. Garrison and Fortin became close friends, and Fortin never refused his friends' pleas for help. So this is somebody who gives everything he has, uh, just being generous in terms of money, but giving energy and moral support and friendship to people, black or white, who support what he thinks will make America a better place. Fortin had been a leading figure in Philadelphia's black community and had been fighting to end slavery before Garrison was even born. He had overcome incredible odds as a black man to make his way in the business world and amass a fortune. But despite the obstacles he had encountered in his life and his hatred of slavery, Fortin was a devoted patriot who believed in the ideals of the young nation he had grown up in. When the American colonies went to war with the British, Fortin enlisted to fight. He was just 14 years old. And it was during the Revolutionary War that the man who made William Lloyd Garrison's career possible nearly became a slave himself. Indeed, Fortin's fate, and that of our entire thread, turn on a single game of marbles. When the Revolutionary War began, the young James Fortin joined the war effort as a sailor. In 1781, the ship he was aboard was pursued and attacked by a British vessel just off the coast of Virginia. Julie Winch again. The British vessel is bigger, more heavily manned, and the American vessel is forced to surrender, at which point Fortin and all the other people on board become prisoners of the British. Fortin knew full well what happened to most black men who were taken as prisoners of war by the British. They were shipped off to the West Indies and doomed to a life of slavery. Luckily for the teenage Fortin, Captain John Baisley, the man in charge of the British ship that had taken him prisoner, had his own problem, his 12-year-old son, Henry. And apparently the 12-year-old um, is bored and his father is trying to find somebody just to keep an eye on him. He cannot have any of his own sailors do this. He can't take men out of a gun crew and have them babysit his kid. So he's going to use one of the prisoners to do it. And he's obviously looking for somebody close to his son's age. And he lights upon Fortin. And so Captain Baisley enlists Fortin to keep his son company and keep him out of trouble on the warship. The two youngsters hit it off. And Fortin apparently uh, cements his friendship with the young British boy uh, through a game of marbles on the gun deck. That game of marbles captures the boy's imagination, and the captain is impressed by the good influence that Fortin is having on his son. The friendship between Fortin and young Henry aboard the ship deepens in the coming weeks, and when it comes time for the British prisoners to be offloaded, 
and the black ones among them to be shipped off to the West Indies, Captain Baisley intervenes to ensure that Fortin is not among them. He never forgot Captain Baisley's kindness. The story that James Fortin tells friends and relatives is that he really believed that had the Baisleys not taken a liking to him, and this friendship that's really cemented by this play of a game of marbles, uh, that he could have been sold into slavery in the West Indies. So this is something he, he really sees as one of those events in his life that's absolutely pivotal. And it's pivotal to our thread as well. Think about it. In 1781, a game of marbles between two boys takes place aboard the deck of a British warship in the Atlantic Ocean. A friendship ensues. As a result, a young black man, James Fortin, is given his freedom through a single act of love and understanding from a sworn enemy, sparking a series of events that will culminate two centuries later with another young black man, Martin Luther King Jr., becoming the embodiment of the idea that loving one's enemy is the best way to achieve one's freedom. In that way, our story comes full circle, from the American colonies of the 18th century to the civil rights movement of the 20th. Indeed, the nonviolent idea that James Fortin helped unleash did more than just change the way that ordinary citizens protest injustice. It helped to redeem the promise of an entire nation. Up next, we find out about some of the surprising traits shared by the historical figures we've covered this season. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. 
Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From its beginning, the history of America has been one that is steeped in blood and violence. And, in the end, the question of slavery in the U.S. could only be resolved through the massive loss of human life. Martin Luther King, Bayard Rustin, and the leaders of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement chose to pursue widespread social change in a different way, one that required the difficult decision to jettison violence and choose love over hate. This is King in 1966, talking about the message that nonviolence sends to one's opponents. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. King had a name for the redemptive potential of nonviolence, the power of love to redeem not only the oppressed, but the oppressor as well. He called it, quote, a double victory. And one day we will win our freedom, but we will not only win freedom for ourselves. We will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. And that is what made the nonviolent protests of the civil rights movement such a remarkable force for change in American history. King, Rustin, and others succeeded where previous activists had failed. And what they accomplished through nonviolence imperfect and incomplete as it was, was in many ways more impressive than any American war victory, because it was a double victory. Indeed, those who fought and struggled peacefully to win both their rights and the hearts of their oppressors deserve a special place in history. King, in the famous letter he wrote while imprisoned in the Birmingham jail, claimed, quote, one day the South will recognize its real heroes. He did not mean its Confederate war heroes. King meant the grandmothers who walked miles to work rather than to ride on a segregated bus, the students who refused to give up their seats at a lunch counter, the demonstrators who faced down the hoses and the police dogs. What King and Rustin, and before them William Lloyd Garrison, accomplished through nonviolence was not just the redemption of their immediate opponents, but the redemption of the very idea of a nation dedicated to the proposition that all are created equal. So where does such a capacity for helping others, including one's sworn enemies, come from? How did Gandhi, King, Rustin, and other leaders manage to adhere to their message of love, even when confronted with overwhelming violence and hatred? Well, it starts with a trait that we don't usually praise, one we even stigmatize, maladjustment. King often talked about this. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology, it is the word maladjusted. This is King at UCLA in 1965. Certainly we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. But I must honestly say to you this afternoon, my friends, there are some things within our world and our nation of which I'm proud to be maladjusted, but 
I never intend to become adjusted to segregation and discrimination. King would go on to add that, quote, human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. He was right, and even more than he ever knew. Martin Luther King Jr. believed that being maladjusted to the world and to the status quo was essential to the fight against injustice. But it was also a big part of what made King the leader he was. This is Nasir Ghami. He's a psychiatrist at Tufts University and Harvard Medical School who studies depression and bipolar illness and who has written about leaders who have suffered from manic depressive illnesses. So I think King's idea was that we need to be maladjusted enough with the world to want to change it for the better. My view is that this is not a purely intellectual concept or even a a purely spiritual one, although it certainly has aspects of both. I think it's also emotional and psychological in that King himself, being depressed as well as having manic symptoms as part of his personality, was maladjusted uh, to the world as it was, uh, as a human being. That's right. Martin Luther King Jr. almost certainly suffered from manic depression. He was clinically maladjusted. King experienced depression during his adolescence, which manifested itself in two suicide attempts. But it went beyond that. He had periods of depression throughout his life where he would, for a few days to a few weeks, often need to go into a medical hospital. He was hospitalized for exhaustion, was the diagnosis that was frequently given, but he never had any physical medical cause for his hospitalizations. King was often in despair near the end of his life. He lamented that his dream had turned into a nightmare, and he was likely in the grips of a deepening depression when he was murdered 50 years ago in Memphis, Tennessee. King was not alone in his battles with depression. Mohandas Gandhi also suffered several bouts of severe depression in his life, starting in adolescence. When he was around 12 years old, he decided to kill himself and went with a friend to a temple with poison and was on the verge of taking it until he backed out at the last second. And, as with King, it did not end there. And then later in his life, he would have periods of time where for a week or a couple weeks, he would just take to his bed. He would feel very sick physically, and doctors would tell him that there was nothing medically wrong with him. But he would describe how he would go to bed at night and be convinced that he was going to die. Another champion of nonviolence who could identify with such experiences was Leo Tolstoy. This is Tolstoy biographer Jay Perini. Tolstoy was um, bordering on bipolar. He, he seemed to have, you know, periods of extreme exhilaration with periods of very dark depression. And he often talked to his friends about wanting to commit suicide. Tolstoy's own psychological condition, however, is also arguably what made him such a good novelist. And like Gandhi and King, it gave him a profound sense of empathy. Why is empathy so important? Because it is the secret ingredient of nonviolence. Gandhi once said, Three-fourths of the miseries and misunderstandings in the world will disappear if we step into the shoes of our adversaries and understand their standpoint. Stepping into the shoes of your adversary is not an easy thing to do, but it wasn't as hard for individuals like King, Gandhi, and Tolstoy, and we are starting to understand why that's the case. So there's research that shows that people who have depression are more empathic than people who don't have depression. Nasir Ghami again. We know the what, we don't really know the how and the why. We know that people who are depressed are more empathic. Um, Now, if I were to speculate about it, I've talked to patients of mine who've had depression, and 
they describe that when they're depressed and in a great deal of psychological pain, they can understand the pain of others more. They feel the pain of others. Uh, one patient of mine once said that when she was really depressed, she could barely walk outside because she could feel every blade of grass crumble under her feet. And um, most of us who are not depressed most of the time just ignore those things. In other words, dealing with depression is painful. But in some ways, depressed people see reality more clearly than others do. And that experience deepens their natural empathy for those around them. I think of nonviolence as radical empathy. And um, you can turn the other cheek and not strike back because you care about the other person who's hitting you. Uh, you it's a very hard thing for a human being to achieve. Gandhi, King, and Tolstoy not only shared a philosophy of nonviolence, but also a very similar psychological profile. My thinking is that, that these aren't coincidences, that the, the reason they took this political philosophy of nonviolent change has to do in part with the fact that they had experienced depression repeatedly in their lives. Enhanced empathy, though, is only part of the equation. Jay Perini again. People who live on the edges like Gandhi, um, Martin Luther King, these are people who are visionaries and who can see both the very bright sun and the very dark sky. And I think that they, they swing between yes and no all the time. And I think Tolstoy was always hovering between the yes and the no. And if the no side of things led such visionaries into a greater sense of empathy, the yes side, the manic side, drove them to excel in an entirely different way. Many people don't understand what mania means or the term to them is um, pejorative. All it really means is that you talk fast, you move fast, you think fast, you have a lot of energy. Usually such persons are very productive. Take Martin Luther King. Usually, Dr. King was very high energy, both physically and sexually. He only needed about four hours of sleep a night. Or Bayard Reston. So generally, he was a high energy person with a high sexual drive who spent a lot of money, who was very flamboyant and very talkative and very creative. In fact, studies show that having manic symptoms as part of your personality can help make you both more creative and more resilient. You are less likely to experience major traumas or stress, even in the face of incredible adversity. And that is precisely what you need in a nonviolent leader. One thing you can say about all of them is that they had a lot of courage. Now, you can especially say that about Dr. King, uh, perhaps the most, but also Gandhi, certainly, and Rustin. They had a lot of personal courage. They were not scared by people easily. Um, or if they were scared, they didn't let that fear stop them from um, being true to their principles. And they were able not only to channel their own energy and aggressive impulses into the courage needed to resist violence, they were able to show their followers how to do the same. But their examples teach us about much more than just how to battle injustice. So Gandhi and King and Rustin are important because they were trying to, to change our mindset on race and, and sexuality but at the same time, if we understand them well, we have to change our mindset around psychiatric illness. And I think that's an important, important aspect of, of uh, really knowing who they were. The legacy of nonviolence continues to be felt today. Up next, we look at some of the most powerful examples of nonviolent protest in the 50 years since Dr. King's death and hear about new scientific research confirming just how effective nonviolence is as a means for accomplishing social change. 
20th century was an extremely violent one. Almost 200 million people died in war by the end of it. But the century also witnessed the emergence of nonviolent protests on a whole new scale, and well beyond those we have covered in our particular thread of history this season. In the wake of Gandhi's Indian independence movement and the civil rights movement, peaceful demonstrations seem to break out everywhere. This is Bayard Rustin talking about the impact of the civil rights movement. I think the movement contributed to this nation a sense of universal freedom. The fact that the people who were against the war in Vietnam saw us go into the street and win made it possible for them to have the courage to go into the street and win. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. Convinced they could take to the streets and win, millions of American women started a new movement during the 1970s to demand change. Across the world, nonviolence scored major victories. During the late 1980s, nonviolent protesters in the former Soviet Union gathered in the streets to sing banned patriotic songs in defiance of their occupiers. It became known as the Singing Revolution, and it worked. Across Eastern Europe, millions of people from the Baltic states to Hungary and Czechoslovakia also refused to cooperate in their own oppression. This is Mark Kurlansky, author of Nonviolence, The History of a Dangerous Idea. The whole downfall of the Soviet Union was done without violence. You know, the Soviet Union was a powerful and violent uh, force that was completely uh, destabilized and, uh, and overthrown without the use of violence by non-cooperation. In some places, nonviolent protest has become the new norm. Most of the political movements in the U.S. since the civil rights movement have been essentially nonviolent movements. There has become a pretty deep tradition in this country of resisting nonviolently. And in an age of information and social media, those nonviolent protest movements continue to evolve. This year, after a school shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida, a group of students banded together to push for gun control reforms. Then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. The Parkland protest movement, which became known as the March for Our Lives, drew on past American protest movements, but it also transcended them in new ways. I don't think it was a conscious choice that, you know, we're going to be nonviolent because it's effective. This is reporter Alex Doherty, the Washington correspondent for the Miami Herald. What I think makes the advocacy that the, the March for Our Lives students engaged in so unique was that it didn't come from a Martin Luther King or an older figure saying, look, you know, it would be a very powerful message to have the kids on our side and to have the kids conveying our argument. It was the kids themselves driving that argument. Another recent example of new voices driving an argument through nonviolent resistance is the group of professional football players led by Colin Kaepernick that began kneeling during the national anthem to draw attention to police brutality in America. It's the rare occasion when sports and politics collide and an NFL quarterback has, cer has certainly ignited a firestorm. We're talking about Colin Kaepernick. Kaepernick's protest has been called divisive and unpatriotic. And he has been criticized by everyone from Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to President Donald Trump. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, get that son of a off the field right now, out, he's fired. But one thing that nobody has done with respect to Kaepernick is ignore him. 
The nonviolent protests that leaders like King and Rustin led in places like Birmingham were, like Kaepernick's kneeling, designed to be divisive, to get people's attention. Kaepernick is a troublemaker, and as we have learned this season, nonviolent troublemakers can accomplish a surprising amount. Why? It turns out that nonviolence is a very effective tactic for achieving social change, and we are only now starting to understand just how profound its impact can be. Love, the soul force, whatever you want to call organized nonviolent resistance, is not only a moral force, it is also a highly effective one. Gandhi realized this fact early on. Mark Kurlansky. He said, we don't have to worry about people who uh, don't believe it'll work because it's like gravity, it will work whether we believe in it or not. And recent research by two American political scientists appears to back up Gandhi's intuition. Kit Miller. There's a substantial research study that was done by Erica Chenoweth and her colleague Maria Stefan studying 206 occurrences of, of nonviolence uh, when it was used to deal with issues of conflict between the years 1900 and 2006. The study found that campaigns of nonviolent resistance were more than twice as effective as their violent counterparts. Nonviolent campaigns were more likely to usher in peaceful democratic governments and to ensure that nations did not relapse into violence or civil war. Why do these campaigns work? The research suggests that nonviolent protests not only attract more people into their ranks, but a more diverse set of people. The fact that protesters don't resort to violence also means that they are more likely to receive broad public support, not to mention sympathy from the soldiers or police officers whose job it is to put down the resistance. Nonviolence, however, is no silver bullet when it comes to achieving freedom and reform. Mark Kurlansky. And, you know, doesn't always work. The Tibetans have been nonviolently resisting the Chinese for decades and seem not to be getting anywhere. And sometimes such movements don't even get off the ground. An Israeli general said to me, you know, you're just never going to convince anybody of this here because it's the Middle East. It's really too bad. I mean, the Palestinians could be so effective against the Israelis with nonviolence. It is not easy to love one's enemies. Anger is a powerful force, and overcoming it requires each of us to engage in a personal transformation. That is something that Arun Gandhi learned from his grandfather when he came to stay with him as a teenager. If we want to put out that fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply. And since the fuel supply comes from each one of us, we have to become the change we wish to see in the world. And change begins with individual acts of sacrifice and kindness, not mass social movements. This is civil rights leader Timothy Jenkins. I think one of the things we need to remember is that small uh, efforts can become big efforts if they're persistently followed. When Dr. King and, and Bayard Rustin and others uh, were able to get things started, they were not a majority, they were not a, even a movement, they were just individuals who were committed. It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And they lit a candle and they were able to overcome the darkness. And one of the big reasons that King and others were able to overcome that darkness and the power of the organized violence aligned against them was because of the fact that the candle they were using was lit by the flame of love. 
Less than a year after the successful Montgomery bus boycott, Dr. King delivered a sermon at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery called Loving Your Enemies. He talked about how responding to injustice with violence creates more problems than it solves. But, according to King, there was another way. That is to organize mass nonviolent resistance based on the principle of love. It seems to me that this is the only way as eyes look to the future. As we look out across the years and across the generations, let us develop and move right here. We must discover the power of love, the power, the redemptive power of love. And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. Red is produced by Libby Coleman, Robert Kulos, Sophia Perpetua, and me, Sean Braswell. Chris Hoff engineered our show. This episode features the Montgomery Gospel Choir with a song called We Are Soldiers. To learn more about The Thread, visit ozzy.com slash the thread, all one word. And make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on iHeartRadio or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out at ozzy.com or on Twitter and Facebook. If you love surprising, engaging stories from history, look no further than the flashback section of Ozzy.com. That's O-Z-Y.com. I'm a soldier. I've got my hands on the gospel plow. One day I'll get old and I can't fight anymore. But you know I'll stand here, child, and I'll fight anyhow. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. 
From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.